You're listening to the 1208 Podcast from 1208 Greenwood Free Methodist Church in downtown Jackson, Michigan. I would love to have somebody read whatever translation you have in front of you. doesn't matter. Romans 11, 1 through Romans 11, 1 to 10. Who wants it? I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant from Abraham, a member of his tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? Now he appeals to God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to them? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knees of all. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works, Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it is seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened, as it is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see, and eyes that would not hear, down to this very day. It says, Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and bend their backs forever. All right, since everybody's scared to sit up front, moving closer. Moving closer. Okay. What popped out to you in this verse, or what's hard to reconcile, or what questions do you have? It's a strange passage. It's not one we like to hear about in church very often, as I think maybe we found some of Romans tends to be that way. <laughs> not everybody who called themselves an Israelite behaved like an Israelite. That, you know, it's like sifting of the wheat. You know, I, I gather them all up, but only so many through the generations proved to be loyal to him, like faithful to him is a better word. And, uh, you know, I think that still holds true for today. I think we've seen it, in my eyes, seen it more clearly these last year and a half or so, two years, that all who call themselves Christians are not. Mm -hmm. And we will be sifted again, uh, you know, like the elect. We will find out who the elect is in our generation. Yeah, I mean, that rings to mind a few different uh, parables, right? Jesus often talks about sifting and, and letting the weeds grow with the uh, actual wheat uh, that he'll take care of it in the end, but in the meantime... Our jobs are just to keep planting, keep planting, plant seeds of heaven. They're strong seeds, and they grow. Um, Jesus tells one parable about, like, planting the seeds, and, like, it grows, so the farmer knows not how. And it's like, well, the farmer usually waters it and makes sure there's sun and everything's appropriate, but 
these seeds of heavens, just like the farmer himself, perhaps is even surprised at how strong it grows. Uh, Jesus coming back to kind of discern what is what. I also bring to mind the parable of the four seeds, if you remember that from Jesus' teaching. He talks about how like the gospel gets planted in a lot of different places. Some people receive it, and then immediately they're like, eh, this is hard, and I'm out. Some people receive it, and then Satan attacks, and they're like, eh, this is hard, and I'm out. Some people receive it, and then there's suffering involved, and they're like, mm, don't know if I want to actually give up things in my life to keep going. And then the one seed that is actually kind of viewed as like the actual Christian, the one that holds through all the way, and then produces more seed and more fruit um, a hundredfold. So, so yeah, I mean, it's hard to hear and hard to process, but uh, Paul looks at Israel, as Marie said, as an example of, look, they're all Israelites. I mean, by their very DNA, they are the elect. But some of them aren't even worshiping God, as Shot was reading earlier. Some of them are worshiping Baal. Um, and that, that is one sin that God does not allow whatsoever, is the idea that you can, you can have God as one of your gods and go do whatever you want with all the other gods as though God is just a god among gods or whatever. Whereas the Bible is very clear, no, you either have Yahweh alone or you have judgment. It's, it's one or the other. So, um, But also to that point, Though all the Israelites clearly weren't Israelites in heart, right? They might bear the circumcision mark, but they don't have the circumcised heart, as Paul says it earlier in Romans. Um, there still are some Israelites who are Israelites. There still are some Christians who are Christians. That God reserves for himself even a remnant among Israel, despite their constant, constant failings. Actually, it's hilarious. Does anybody remember what the word Israel means? When God names Jacob Israel? God with us. God with us, that's Emmanuel. This one's God something. God strives. (laughs) The holy name Israel is literally God strives with us. (laughs) As though like in their very name itself is... What a struggle you guys are sometimes to, to focus and to follow. At what point did he give them that name? Uh, when Jacob wrestles with the angel or Jesus. <coughs> yeah. Bless you. Thank you. So the struggle there. Yeah. Jacob literally wrestles with God and then is named, you wrestle with God. <laughs> <laughs> so all of your descendants will be carrying the oh-so-devout name of we wrestle with God. Uh, but isn't that so appropriate? Oh, yeah. I mean, like every day, mm-hmm. I wrestle with God. Mm-hmm. Who's going to win this battle? Me, my way, or you, or in your way? Mm-hmm. And we can wrestle pretty strong. I mean, in the end, Jacob never really gave up. He got injured along the way, but he he never gave up wrestling to the point. He's just like, no, you got to bless me. Bless me. <laughs> Trying to bring God into his own understanding of what he wants. Bless me, dang it. Uh, and that's oftentimes what we do with God is, I want the good stuff. I want to be an Israelite. I want to be saved. I want to be one of God's people. But I also like all this other stuff, and I want that too. 
And that's, that's the wrestling, where Paul's whole thing of faithfulness is, despite your wrestling, like we at least need to be solidified. It's faith in God. It's faithfulness to God. It's allegiance to God. And that is how we are saved in the first place. So. And that has always been the case throughout history, too, including people like Jacob, who was a bit of... His morality is in question, to say the least. <laughs> but his faithfulness to God, that remains fairly certain throughout his story, just as it does with all the biblical characters. Just as it does with us. Oftentimes our morality is in question, but God is a gracious God who stays strong with us so long as we stay faithful to him. Uh, okay. Anything else pop out to you in this Romans 1-11? through 11? I feel like it references a lot of Old Testament. Yeah, references a lot of Old Testament. You guys remember last week? Last week is literally just references to Old Testament story, Old Testament story, Old Testament story. Remember two weeks ago? It was all focused on Pharaoh and how he hardened his heart and how God hardened his heart. An Old Testament story, Old Testament story. We often read books of the Bible in like little spurts. Remember, this is a letter. You're supposed to read it all in one sitting. He wrote it to like in your mail. Pick it up, read it. So if we've been reading now and paying attention, we're now on like, Paul's been quoting Old Testament passages straight through the letter, but the last three chapters are dense with, with Old Testament. And it's not exactly a pleasant Old Testament passage he quotes either, right? Uh, God keeps a few of the Israelites... He keeps some select ones, some elect ones, some who still followed him while the others followed Baal. But there are others that due to them following Baal and giving their lives over, God actually kind of blinds them to the truth of the gospel. Blinds them, it seems, to actually finding salvation. So it's not a pleasant passage he quotes from, uh, where are we at here? Isaiah? Yeah. But Isaiah says, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see, ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them, that their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. I'm not really sure what that last part means in a custom or something, but that doesn't always sound to us like the graciousness of God. What do you do with passages like this? How do you interpret it? Why is God blinding some people from the gospel? Think about what they're doing and turn their life around and come to him. Okay. Yeah. I think we could see some of that in the Bible. Uh, a lot of times the Bible talks about how when we experience suffering or pain or difficulty, it's actually God turning us over to our sin, the stuff that we don't want to get out of. Uh, even the flood has certain wording around it where it's like the earth was headed in this trajectory already. They were destroying everything. So God just turned them over to the weight of what they were already doing in its fullness. Uh, so, yeah, to some extent, sometimes it is in our suffering that, that we find God. Uh, C.S. Lewis, to paraphrase, once said that pain is God's megaphone. Is that not true? Where do people usually come to salvation when things are really good? 
when things are really bad. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that surprised me when I first started working with uh, people dealing with poverty or homelessness or things like that is they were all saved. Everyone I talked to, some, some of them knew the Bible better than I did. And I was expecting, like, I was expecting to come with the good news and the gospel, and they were coming to me with it and preaching to me. And you know this, per, you know this verse in the Bible, Jamin? <laughs> I don't, actually. <laughs> and why? why? Why do they already have this down? Well, in their desperateness sometimes, that's where you really turn to God. When we're lacking, that's when we turn. I mean, isn't that when people finally end up in recovery? You can deal with a lot of crap in your life so long as you can make it work. But people who actually find recovery are those who say this isn't working anymore. I really need God to help me out or I'm never getting out of this. We'll suffer a lot. And a lot of times we won't find God until we are beyond our rope. So yeah, that's a good point, Debbie. When you talk about elect ones, what does that mean? So the Bible talks about something called election, which for a lot of people gets turned into a God has chosen some people and other people he hasn't. There's a certain kind of truth to that, but it's not in the sense that a lot of people make it. In my opinion, it's not in the sense that like, before everyone was ever born, God said, these people I'm saving and the rest are doomed for judgment. Rather, what I see is God looking for those who... Second uh, Chronicles. Second Chronicles says, God's eyes move to and fro throughout the earth, looking to give strong support to those who... I don't remember the rest of it, but it's like, there's some who need the strong support of God, whereas there's others who don't. Like they're, They don't have character. They're not interested in Him. They're going a different route. And so you see God like has always kind of been like choosing as to who to elect, who to bring in, who to support, who maybe to turn over to their pain, like Debbie was saying. Um, So that would kind of be like election. So you are an elect one. As a Christian, you have been selected, elected in to his kingdom. Um, Which I think, this is important. I've talked about this a lot. I know I'm probably, probably sick of hearing it, but I think it's helpful to try to process this. We have two extremes in the church in our denominations. On one side is a denomination that says, like, uh, everything is completely set up exactly the way that it is, and um, uh, God has only elected some, and that's exactly the way that he always planned on it being. And then there's the side of free will that says everything is happening spontaneously, and maybe God has no control and it just is what it is. And God is electing people as they operate in their free will. He's, he's choosing. Whereas in the end, we, we really have to take both sides of the puzzle and the coin to bring them together to understand that God truly does have the sovereign power to be the one to elect people, but also has seen our free will and how it is lived out and is picking and choosing, if you will, based on, on what he sees sometimes. So here's an analogy for you. 
When we talk about evangelism, reaching people and bringing them into the kingdom of heaven, we picture heaven as a country where if people just like would look and see heaven, they would just walk straight towards it. And when they got there, the gate would be wide open. They would walk in and an angel would be like, ah, yes, we've been waiting for you. Here's your citizenship papers. Welcome to the kingdom of heaven. That's often how we picture evangelism as though like, it's right there and we can all see it if we just open our eyes to it. Here's another way of thinking of it that's still not right on, but think of heaven as a country where if you were to get into this country, you would need to maybe pass like a citizenship test. Like there would actually be requirements of you. Are you going to follow our King and Savior, Lord Jesus Christ, and give your life to him to enter into heaven? Uh, and if the answer is yes, well, then welcome in. Uh, come inside. Here we've got, you know, your citizenship papers. You are now an ambassador. The Bible calls you a citizen of heaven. It refers to you as an ambassador of the kingdom of heaven. So now, while you live on the earth, you are like God's representation of another country, another kingdom, to invite people in. That's another way of looking at it. As though, like, I didn't just walk into the door freely but I had to actually give my life to the king of heaven to walk in. Okay? That's also probably more how we speak of evangelism. There's a component missing, though, in both of those views that I think we find in the country of Alexandria in The Walking Dead. <laughs> okay? Has anybody ever seen or read any of this? Anybody know what Alexandria is? Mm-hmm. Caitlin's the only pagan in here watching The Walking Dead. All right. <laughs> Just kidding, I've seen it. Uh, So, in The Walking Dead, they find a paradise, a kingdom of heaven, if you will. There's this one community with the walls around it, keeping it safe from zombies, and it's got power, it's got electricity, it's got video games. Like, if you're there, it would just feel like paradise. The rest of the world is falling apart, and yet here's these people living their life exactly as they would have before. It's... It's a wonderful place to be. Now, what they do in Alexandria is they raise up some people and make them uh, evangelists, if you will. They send them out. I want you to go out there and spy on people. And as you observe them, recognize their character, the way they handle situations. And if they seem like people who should be coming into Alexandria... Go and present the gospel, if you will. Go and present the message to come into Alexandria. That they can come and and live with us. And so you have these missionaries, if you will, who, who go out and they watch from a distance. They see how people handle situations. And they know that everybody's a sinner. Honestly, if you're still alive in The Walking Dead after one year, you've done some pretty bad stuff. (laughs) Because the whole world has fallen apart and the only way you survive is by doing immoral things. So they know that if anyone's going to come into Alexandria, there's going to have to be some grace on the table. They also know if anyone's going to come into Alexandria, that they have to be able to trust their character. They also know if anyone's going to be able to come into Alexandria, they need to be able to um, trust that they're going to live a life that is going to make sense with all the other Alexandrians. And so they spy. And when the time is right, they go out 
And if they have deemed that these people are safe to bring into Alexandria, they say, come with us. We want to show you this place. Not everyone's always going to accept Alexandria. Some of them think it's crazy. The, the idea that there's a paradise still in the world and the apocalypse of the walking dead, like we don't want to go there. Some of them end up being more corrupt than they thought and they kill the missionaries. Some of them want to go and, and battle Alexandria. It's kind of what you see at the end of Revelation where all the nations rise up and try to attack the kingdom of heaven on earth. Um, but they go and they share that message and they welcome people in. But they are careful about who they're choosing. And so you see in that analogy of Alexandria that it's not people who save themselves. It's not people who saw the gates of Alexandria wide open and just walked through and were handed citizenship papers. It's not even people who said, yes, Rick Grimes is my president, I will follow him. It's not even people who... Um, are willing to just go and live there and enjoy paradise. It's people who, who Alexandria has sent out representatives to choose and select and bring people in. That better matches this idea of God looking to and fro throughout the earth and selecting people to bring them in. Choosing as to who in their character makes sense. And Paul gave an example of Pharaoh who didn't make sense. Pharaoh had done a lot of evil things. Pharaoh was deeply corrupt. Pharaoh had persecuted all these, uh, the least of these, all the poor and powerless among him. And God looked at Pharaoh and said, I've actually deemed him worthy of judgment. He is not allowed in the kingdom of heaven, if you will. And Pharaoh is as good as, as dead as of this day. But I'm going to leave him alive because the judgment that I'm going to put on Pharaoh is to bring these plagues upon him. And every time that he tries to repent, I'm going to harden his heart so that he gets even worse and worse because he's already been judged as dead. He does not get to come in. He does not get to, to change his life around. I could have taken his life this night, but instead I'm telling a more powerful story about how God liberated the Hebrews from the Egyptians through the judgment that I put on him. Those are tough passages. I'm sorry, I, I didn't mean to. Oh, no, no, you're good. Did you have oh, something yeah. you need to say? I, I just struggle with the, the, in the Bible, mm. the part about when, when God said that he hardened Pharaoh's heart. I don't, yeah. you know, it, it, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe I'm just a slow learner. No, 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 no. This has been a complicated passage to a lot of people. Uh, Paul quotes it and then puts a spin on it of Pharaoh... Um, God had already been gracious with Pharaoh and suffered a lot with him. Mm -hmm. And now he has deemed that Pharaoh, uh, this is part of my spin on it, Pharaoh no longer gets a chance. So imagine, imagine that Pharaoh died before any of the plagues came. Uh -huh. That was the judgment that was on his life. He no longer gets a chance. The reason that he continues to live according, uh, I think, to Exodus and Paul is so the judgment that's on him tells a much greater story to the Hebrews of how he conquered their oppressor and how he removed them and saved them from the Egyptians and then conquered the Egyptians. So the story that the Hebrews get is one of liberation and not one of, oh yeah, Pharaoh just died one day and that was our story. Instead, God tells a different story through that judgment.
it takes a while to process that. Uh, but, and you can go a different route with it if you want. That's the one that makes the most sense to me. But you know what? Did, did this actually happen? Because this is what Robert showed me. Okay, I was struggling at one time. Mm -hmm. Being, becoming a believer. And Robert showed me one time when I came to visit, he showed me on his computer. You know when the, when, when the Red Sea opened up and the uh, Pharaoh and all that was going after them? Well, Robert showed me on the computer how they died in the Red Sea. Pharaoh and... Yeah. That's true? I mean, that's the narrative as the Bible tells us. That's the story of the Hebrews. There are occasional moments throughout your Bible where the story is being told to teach you something allegorically and not literally. Uh, but discerning what is what sometimes it's hard to, to tell. The, what, the story of what God wants you to actually know is still true, still real. Some stories don't even have to happen to be true, like mythology has plenty of, of truth to it, uh, even in its story form. So that, that, that's what makes me, made me become a believer, mm. because of seeing that mm. on that computer. You know where that happened. Yeah. They didn't give it to them. Yeah. Well, there's plenty of archaeological studies. Uh, this is why we love archaeology in the Bible study world is because it shows us what's happened throughout history and we can see, oh yeah, this war right here that's mentioned in the Bible, this actually happened. But then like, take uh, uh, the Battle of Jericho, for example, where the walls come tumbling down. Technically, no archaeology has ever proved that that story happened. We haven't found any proof that Jericho collapsed in any sense of, of that idea. Yet, yet, but let's say that it didn't happen. There is still plenty to understand from that story, to learn from, to understand what the Hebrews were getting at, how God is still liberator, still watching out for them, how they didn't have to do anything to liberate themselves except trust in God. Uh, there's still plenty, plenty of story there, even if you were to consider that mythology to teach lessons to, to the Hebrews and to us. Right? But uh, to figure out some of those things takes a lot of extra Bible study. I want to say something silly. Uh, mm -hmm. I used to, you know, the, the, the Ten Commandments that come on TV. Mm -hmm. <laughs> this four-hour movie. Of... I guess that, that is what, this was confusing me about what, from what Robert showed me. <laughs> <laughs> about Pharaoh. Yeah. <laughs> you know that. Because, mm. uh, like I said, for a while there, I wasn't a believer. I'm so used to this ticking man on TV. <laughs> and then Robert showed me this one. So, but then, like I said, that made me believe. And mm. I figured out that that was just a TV show. Yeah. Well, there's no, no, no. I mean, there's plenty of movies that are inspired by the Bible, and even Christians help write them. And then there's some that are just so left field, but inspired by the Bible. Uh, God has a way of working in all kinds of media. I just saw a musical this last week, and 
there was this verse being sung, and I don't even know how to describe the experience, but I felt like the whole room almost shrink around me and the words, it, it felt like God was instantly saying, this verse right here is from me to you, listen to it. And I just started like weeping right there in the theater. Fortunately, I was alone, nobody watching me, but <laughs> like that was secular media. There was nothing Christian about that movie and yet God broke through in that moment. So you can break through through things like yeah. uh, the Exodus and things like that. Um, all right, let me get ready to wrap up, but I still didn't fully finish my analogy. Alexandra is still not a good case of what evangelism looks like. So here's the final one. Imagine Alexandria being more like this. You, as a Christian, are to go into all the world, love everyone, invite everyone, and you as a Christian don't get a choice as to if they have any character or not. You just invite no matter what. That is what the Bible calls us to do. But what the Bible also tells us is that as we preach and evangelize and share the good news... God is the one who chooses on the other side of that message whose ears get open to it and whose ears stay shut to it. So you as the missionary of Alexandria don't get a spy from a distance and decide if they get the message or not. God requires you to always be preaching. Always be preaching through your life, through what you do, where you live, work, and play, how you speak, what you speak about, God always requires that of us as Christians. But the selecting, the electing part, God does that. So there's a supernatural component to evangelism that doesn't match any of the three analogies we put forth. Because as you speak out, God will decide who's a pharaoh, who's not, who's worshiping Baal, who's not. And God will choose along the way as to whose ears are open and whose are not. I think part of the difficulty with evangelism is we've turned it all into manipulation. Guys, if we wanted, we could have a worship service and I know how to manipulate you all into having energy to worship. I try not to do that because I know how. If we wanted, I know how to get people rushing the altar. I try not to do that because I see it as manipulation. I know how. And those are the kind of seeds that oftentimes are the ones that sprout up and die instantly. Manipulative evangelism, I don't think it works. And I think what Marie was saying earlier about how we're seeing the church come crashing down because it seems like Christians don't know who Jesus is, that's because we've put all of our tactics into manipulative evangelism. We can win people in through just manipulation. But if we just preach the gospel at all times and let God do the choosing without the manipulation on the other end, you're going to see that fruit grow up a whole lot more. And so let's do that. Let's let our lives be worship. Uh, Paul's going to go forth in the next chapter to talk about um, uh, that you are a living sacrifice. Let your life be a living sacrifice. Preach the gospel at all times. And let God do the work to save people on the other end. Put people on God's radar. Like, I know that sounds silly. He, everyone's on his radar. But, like, pray for them. Hey, God, I, as your child, 
no, this person over here doesn't know who you are, and I just would like to petition on their behalf. Would you please bring them to you? Would you please save them? Would you please elect them, select them? And what can I do in the meantime to, to reach them down here? Should I make them food? Bring them a dinner someday? Is there something that they need? Do I need to take care of their kids for a few days? Uh, is there some kind of financial component where the blessing you want to put on them is coming out of my wallet? Ask those questions. Pray on behalf of others around you. And as you do that, let God warm their hearts and reach out to them. Okay, so in the end, walking through heaven's doors and just letting that be that is not a good analogy. Feeling like you chose to walk through heaven's doors and make the commitment is not a good analogy of evangelism. Having people go out and reach you on behalf of God is not even the perfect analogy of evangelism. I think the best analogy we have is we are always preaching the gospel and God is doing the supernatural work on the other side to pull people out of that. And hey, just because there's someone at the moment who keeps refusing God does not mean that they won't come around. Pharaoh is an extreme case. Uh, All of us have been in some pretty dark places and God has pulled us out of it. Amen? Amen. The same is true of people out there today who mimic Pharaoh. That doesn't mean that God's like, no, you get no chance. God is willing to go the distance for anyone who softens their heart. King Manasseh, perfect choice. That dude might as well have been Pharaoh or worse. That guy was messed up. Uh, He burned children alive to the false gods. He brought all the false gods into Israel and made everyone worship them. There was more blood spilt in Israel than the nations that God had used Israel to, to attack in the previous past. Like, King Manasseh is part of the reason that God said, I'm done with you guys. I'll keep a remnant of you, but you're all going into exile afterwise. That's because of Manasseh. And we would think Manasseh, just forget it. He's never, he's never getting saved. But you know what happened? Like Debbie said, God turned Manasseh over to his pain. Manasseh was captured by the enemy. They put hooks in his nose and dragged him out in a cage like a beast. Uh, and the whole enemy rejoiced over conquering Manasseh. And while Manasseh was in jail with the enemy, he repented. And God let him free, and he went back to Israel, and he took down all the altars that he had built, as well as the altars that all the bad kings before him had built, if I remember right. And he tried to turn Israel back towards Yahweh. That is a story... You do not expect to find there. But that is how gracious God is. And a good example of how we can be super dark in our hearts and yet God still has the grace to not pour out pure judgment on us. And how suffering did get his attention to bring him back to the kingdom of heaven, if you will.